have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Ezra chapter 1. An Old Testament book. Ezra. What a great book it is. It covers an incredible event, really in the nation of Israel. An amazing time to be alive if you were in the nation of Israel. An incredible event has occurred that is going to dictate the fallout of Ezra's story. In fact, big events in life are powerful. Big events that are beyond our control in life are shaping, they are revealing. They shape the course of our lives. Either we rise to the occasion as opportunities and big events occur, or we fall under the weight of them. And the book of Ezra chronicles the actions that follow a single event so powerful and so large that it marks the history of the nation of Israel, and that is the exile. Maybe you know it as the captivity, the 70 years of captivity. Now, I'm going to be cognizant of the fact that we've already fit a lot into this service, and I won't try to belabor it, but I want you to historically understand what has occurred that brings us to Ezra chapter 1 so that you can be helped, so that you can grasp the mandates and the principles that come out of it. You need to know the tone of the moment. I have had you turn to Ezra chapter 1, but if we were to back up to the book of 2 Kings, we would arrive at a moment of tragedy. In fact, what is conveyed in it is savage in nature, the judgment of God. Listen in as 2 Kings 25 recounts for us the fall of Jerusalem, and it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host, against Jerusalem and pitched against it. And they built forts against it round about. They have besieged the city of Jerusalem. It's evident. Jerusalem has no way out. And the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. At this point, there's no commerce in and no commerce out, and they're starving to death within Jerusalem. Grasp the pain of this moment. As the famine prevails, verse 4 tells us, the city was broken up and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city round about, and the king went the way toward the plain, and the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army were scattered from him. Now get this. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon to Riblah. So Nebuchadnezzar has his headquarters at Riblah while Jerusalem is besieged. Zedekiah makes it out through the tunnels and he's running for his life. His army has now scattered around him and they capture Zedekiah and they bring him to Nebuchadnezzar's headquarters at Riblah. And here's what we read in verse 7. They slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass 
and carried him to Babylon. That's savage. That's tragic. That's, That's terrible to read. They take Zedekiah's sons and they execute his sons in front of him and then they take his eyes away, meaning the last thing that he ever saw with his physical eyes was the execution of his sons. This is a terrible accounting. Amazingly, by the time you get down to verse 10 of 2 Kings 25, you read, And all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. Jerusalem is no more. Jerusalem is no more and the people are carried away into captivity. This moment in time really accounts for much of the Old Testament. You have the minor prophets and the major prophets who were warning of this moment in time. And you have some of the minor prophets and the major prophets that were preaching to people while they were in exile. You have the historical accounts of how the nation of Israel got there. And you arrive at Ezra and you begin to round the corner back to some light, some renewal. You can almost feel the tragedy of the moment when Jerusalem falls. You can really hear the pain as the priests of God are executed. In verse 18, the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the door. Now out of the city he took an officer that was set over the men of war and five men of them that were in the king's presence which were found in the city and the principal scribe of the host which mustered the people of the land and threescore men of the people of the land that were found in the city and Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon to his headquarters again at Riblah and the king of Babylon smote them. And then this summary phrase, so Judah was carried away out of their land. I know that I am regaling you with a historical account of something that may not matter much to you. But if we're ever going to understand the tenor and the moment that we arrive at in Ezra, we've got to grasp this. We have to sense the national pain. We have to see the savagery of this moment. We have to understand what has happened at Jerusalem. They are all carried away in exile. The walls are broken down. The temple has been plundered. All that was kept in there is no more. Now I'll continue this historical bent for just another moment. The Babylonians won't rule forever. The Babylonians will capitulate and they'll actually be conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And just to communicate how God's hand is in control of all of this, you may remember a moment in Daniel when a party is going on and a hand writes a message on the wall and no one can translate it. Daniel is brought in and Daniel actually says in Daniel 5.28, here's the meaning of the message, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And certainly it was. Indicating that in every moment God still has his man and in every moment God still has a message and in every moment God is still in control. Now stunningly, we will read in Isaiah chapter 44 something that stands out. The children of Israel are conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and they're carried off into captivity. Zedekiah's sons are murdered in his sight. His eyes are taken out. He's bound in fetters of brass. Off to Babylon he goes. The city walls are broken down. The temple is plundered and all the children of Judah are carried away into captivity. 
Here in this moment, we grasp that Nebuchadnezzar falls, the Medes and the Persians take over, but the children of Israel are still in bondage. 150 years prior to this moment, Isaiah prophesies something. Listen into what he says, Isaiah 44, 28. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Something crazy happens. Isaiah has just prophesied 150 years prior that a man named Cyrus is going to give a mandate and Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Now, if you were Cyrus and you were a worshiper of pagan gods and someone came to you and revealed this writing and your name was named and you were smart enough to grasp this moment, I'd imagine it would have an impact on you as it did on him. 70 years. 150 years prior, God makes a proclamation through Isaiah that Cyrus will release them. 70 years they've been in exile. They've been in bondage. What this communicates to me is God is not bound by our timetable. God is always and ever in control. He is not bound by our whims and wishes and our timetable to come through, but he always comes through. Now, at this moment in time, we arrive in the book of Ezra. This has to be fixed in our minds. An opportunity from Cyrus to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. Some would go. The majority would not. Ezra would go, and when Ezra gets back to Jerusalem, he'll find that no one had attempted to rebuild the temple or to repair the walls. Perhaps the task was simply too big. I mean, the stones were overturned, the gates were burned. Anything of value had long ago been taken and removed by scavengers. Jerusalem was ruined. No one really had the energy to rebuild it. And this book, Ezra, is an accounting of what happens when an opportunity arises. When a once-in-a-lifetime moment comes to us, even though it may be difficult, that's right where we are. And if we were standing with Ezra at this moment in time, traveling back to him, we could look at him and we could say, Ezra, this moment is really big and this city is really destroyed and this is somewhat overwhelming. What should I do? And Ezra, in my estimation, would simply hand us a trowel and point us to a place on the wall and tell us, go do your job there. Now, we've arrived here. You say, Pastor, I didn't come here on a Sunday morning to see a dumb building and have a history lesson. Apologies. Maybe you came for this, the proclamation of Cyrus. Not getting better, dude. Still sounds like history. Listen in. Ezra begins in this way. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Verse 3 is the crux of the matter. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the free will offering for the house of, the God, of God that is in Jerusalem. That's the proclamation of Cyrus that Isaiah prophesied 150 years earlier would actually come out. And then in the first verse, we're told that the word of Jeremiah the prophet might be seen as true. This happened 200 years before this. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 29.10, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. What we can deduce from all of this history is that God is a keeper of his promises. God is true to his word. With him there is no variableness, neither is there shadow of turning. If God says it, it is as though it is already done. God is a keeper of his promises. Did you note in the first verse, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia? It wasn't that Cyrus just had a good idea to send some people back to Jerusalem to build the temple. The Lord stirred him up. That word literally means to arouse to action, to open one's eyes. What this communicates to us is in the midst of all of this savagery, in the midst of what is a violent passage of Scripture, it is clear that God does not abandon his children to judgment, but that God is merciful, that he is kind, that he is a keeper of promises, and that God in this moment has not forgotten them. And grasp this, that God uses the deeds of men, both good and evil, to accomplish his purposes. Even when the circumstances seem so dark and hopeless, God is still in control. Nebuchadnezzar was a tool in the hand of God as judgment for the children of Israel because they had abandoned the law of God. Prophets had been sent to warn the children of Israel, do not be stubborn, confess, and, and God will accept you. They stubbornly refuse, they reject God, and God uses Nebuchadnezzar as a tool of judgment on his people. Then the Medes and Persians as a tool of judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. Good men, bad men, God oversees all circumstances for his good. Now I think about this. It's clear. That Cyrus was aware of the prophecy of Isaiah from 150 years earlier. Now meditate for just a second. Who in the kingdom of Babylon, also connected to King Cyrus of Persia, would have had close access to the king and also had knowledge of the writings of Isaiah so as to get the prophecy before Cyrus so that Cyrus could act and have his heart stirred by the Lord. I believe only one person in the Old Testament fits that billing, and it is Daniel, 
who refused the king's meat. He refused to be tainted with Babylon. And I believe that Daniel revealed unto Cyrus what the word of God had said. And God's word awoken, aroused Cyrus to make this proclamation. What I deduce from that is, like Daniel, regardless of where you find yourself, be bold and proclaim the word. Let the word of God do what only the word of God can do. And what we found in verse 3 is Cyrus, a pagan man, asking the question, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. In essence, if I were to summarize it, he says, who will go? Who will go and take on this seemingly impossible job? Who will do the difficult thing? A pagan king, moved by God, goes to God's people and asks, who will go? Did you also note that he said, who will go build the house of the Lord God of Israel? He is the God. He didn't say, who will go and reestablish a political scene? He didn't say who will go and establish outlets for the poor. He said who will go and reestablish proper worship of God. That's where it always begins, at the house of God, obedience to God. I'd like to stand before you and say the awesome thing is, about three million people, history tells us, are in captivity at this moment. And all three million of them were stirred and roused up to go back to Jerusalem and seize the moment and do the difficult thing. But the fact is, only a few actually went. Verse 5. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. Now I have to point out linguistically what happens. The Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus. He aroused him. He woke him up to what needed to be done. And in these verses, we see that same Hebrew word used when the Spirit of God raised up some people to do this difficult thing, which indicates we better be listening to God because moments arise in our life where God knocks on our heart and he opens our eyes to an opportunity, to a moment that is bigger than us. He stirs us to do something. Now, not everybody goes. The fact is, you can do a lot of math. It's hard to do. I let some smarter people than me in commentaries do that math from Ezra chapter 2. We can deduce that out of the 3 million people, about 50,000 of them go. That is an extreme minority. But they went. I know that it's clear from within Scripture, even those that did not go to do the difficult thing, they gave willingly Some of them gave silver and some of them gave gold and others of them even gave beasts of burdens. All of that was beside the free will offering that they gave to enable this difficult task to be done. God is stirring people up. A moment has arrived. Even Cyrus gets in on it. And I want you to see this. Verse 7. 
Also Cyrus the king brought forth, note what he brings out, the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus king of Persia bring forth by the hand of Mithridath the treasurer and numbered them unto Sheshbazar, prince of Judah. And this is the number of them. And I won't bore you with the number of them, but I want you to understand what God has done. God promised that these implements that were looted from the temple would be returned to the temple. And when Nebuchadnezzar took over Jerusalem and raided the temple, he took all of those implements and he brought them back to Babylon and he used them in the house of his gods, little g. I don't know what kind of numbering system they had, but I know in this moment, Cyrus decides that everything that had been taken from the temple was going to go back to the temple, and so he removes all of those things from the house of the gods, little g of the pagans, gives them to Ezra and his group to take back to the temple. God never forgets even little things. God is always in control. God's word always comes through. It's tainted with a little sadness that only 50,000 people would go back. Now understand just a little something more about this captivity. When they were taken to Babylon, though they were in bondage, though they were subjugated, they were basically brought into the economy. People actually had good jobs. Some of them were in agriculture, some of them were in commerce, some of them were even in education. History will tell us that Aramaic became the language of the Jewish families that were in captivity. They actually could amass some wealth. They developed a lifestyle of comfort within Babylon, and in this moment in history, to be in Babylon was a really great deal. It was advanced. All of these people had almost completely forgotten God. Now, in Psalm 137, we arrive at an interesting lament. The 137th Psalm is a psalm of mourning. Now, I want you to listen in to the 137th Psalm of mourning, and here is the question that is asked. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Now let me help you understand that moment. Literally what the nation of Israel is lamenting in that psalm is how can we even sing songs of praise while we are away from Jerusalem? How can we even sing songs of praise while Jerusalem lies in ruin and the temple is obliterated and the walls are down? In fact, he goes so far as to say, here's the voice of the nation. God, if we ever forget that Jerusalem is our priority and Judah is our home, may our hands forget how to even play the harp to sing these songs. If Jerusalem is not our priority, God, if we don't pursue what you want for us, may our tongues cleave to the roof of our mouth so that we can't even, how could we ever sing songs of praise? Our lives are so distant from Jerusalem. Let us hang our harps up on the willow trees and forget that we even sing until we can get back to Jerusalem. And then along comes Cyrus and he says, hey, 
You can go back to Jerusalem. You can go back now and rebuild the temple. And they're like, uh, isn't that what you were singing about, man? Wasn't that the prayer of your heart? You just wanted to go back to Judah. You wanted to go to Jerusalem. You wanted to do the difficult thing and rebuild the walls. and rebuild. Go! I, I just, I just kind of sung it because everybody else was singing it. I, I mean, we kind of did it at that one get-together. Everybody sang. I was like, let's go back to Jerusalem. <laughs> let's go build the temple. And then they're like, you can do it. Like, I, uh, I can't right now. I mean, I want to. I love Psalm 137. Do not get me wrong. Psalm 137 is motivational. Psalm 137 moves me. I'm all about hanging the harps in the willow trees, man. I, I don't even want to sing. Listen, roof, my mouth, tongue, cleave. I get it. I, don't, I can't even sing here. Kind of hate it here, but I don't think I can go back. I don't think that's actually for me. That really seems hard. They have so acclimated to life in Babylon, they have so acclimated to their lifestyle under the Medes and the Persians that when the moment arises for them to do something difficult and for them to do something for God, they who acted like it was literally the aim of their hearts are like, yeah, not me though. I love how one practically wrote it. He said, I can imagine interviewing the average Israelite on the streets of Babylon on this day. He said, the first question might be, do you believe in the God of Israel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. Do you believe that Israel is the land God designed for his people to inhabit? Yes, sir, I do. Do you believe that God would like to have his temple rebuilt? Do you believe that God would like to have worship restored? Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. I know he would. Well, would you be willing to go back and return? Would you be willing to see that God's desires are fulfilled? Would you be willing to go back and line your priorities up with God? Uh, yeah, not me. No. Now, I got a neighbor. He's a little different. He's the kind that would go back and build a temple. We just put an addition here on. <laughs> I can't. My husband just got a new chariot. It's so nice. We just got a couple of goats in the yard. I just got new sandals. They are so killer. We've actually been introduced to silk here. There's entertainment here. We have venues to go to here. I think what you're looking for is the people who don't quite have life figured out. I think you're looking for the foolish and the weak. I think you're looking for my cousin. Totally needs to go back to Jerusalem. It's somewhat sad that they would say they believed it when the moment arose, they'd refuse to take it on. A Gallup poll surveyed mainline denominations a few years ago and discovered this. 68% of professing believers have somehow come to the conclusion that what they believe has nothing to do with how they live. 68%. Do you believe God wants you to do this? Yeah. Do you believe God wants the world reached with the gospel? Oh, yeah. Do you believe God loves the church? Yes, I do. Do you want to be a part of serving and go with the gospel? Honestly, pastor, there is a guy that drives me nuts on the back row here. He should go. He's already like kind of one of those Bible thumper dudes anyways. Send him. I got stuff to do. Now, we could get really argumentative, and I think that this is valid. You say, now, hold on. It's said in there that those whom God had raised up are the ones that went, and God raised up 50,000. I have no doubt, but I also believe that sometimes God stirs hearts, and people say no. 
And I think interwoven into the mystery of all of this is divine initiation and human cooperation. Sometimes God knocks on your heart and he says, I'm talking to you. I want you to go. I want you to give. I want you to serve. And we think, yuck, not me. Now, out of fairness, I think it's clear that the countrymen who didn't return to Jerusalem gave. I think they gave willingly and generously. It's also clear that Nebuchadnezzar had to give back even after the fact. All of those implements, but only a few went. I'll very quickly apply three simple lessons. The first is this. Obedience is always the hallmark of a true child of God. Say, well, they're all the children of God. They're just over there in captivity. The return was the fulfillment of prophecy, yes, but it was also an act of obedience by those that went. Obedience. Secondarily, this world is not our home. It's evident that God did not intend for his people to make their permanent home in Babylon. He did not want them to make their permanent home outside of Judah. His temple is in ruins. The city walls are down. God grieved over that situation. So much so that he had set in motion hundreds of years prior an opportunity to go back and renew. Do it again. Do the difficult thing. To go back to do what mattered most, not the things of this world. The fact is, too many of them had grown too content in a world that was not their home to go back and do what God wanted. And the same thing exists for us. Third simple principle I would apply is this. It's a challenge, really. Do the difficult thing. Sacrifice. Do the hard thing. Oswald Chambers in my utmost for his highest, wrote, thank God he gives us difficult things to do. Now, nobody likes that. In fact, one wrote of that statement. The first time I read that statement, I shook my head in disagreement, but I was young and inexperienced then, and it seemed smarter to do the easier thing that made me look successful. However, I've lived long enough to understand the wisdom of Chambers' statement. I've learned that when God tells us to do difficult things, it's because he wants us to grow. When he gives us difficult things to do that are bigger than us, it's because he wants to enlarge our faith. It's because God wants to do something that only he can do. And so my challenge would be, do the difficult thing. It's easy to just let days pass by. It's easy to let opportunity go by us. It's easy to look to others to carry out the great commissions and to take the great steps. But I'd say to you, obedience is the hallmark of a true child of God. This world is not our home. At times, it's you, man. It's me. Got to do the difficult thing. Would you please, for just a moment, bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.